you know my Alexa keeps beeping at me? Shall I just turn it off oh. in case it's picking it up? Sorry. Computer. Fuck off. <laughs> right, I've turned it off. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 238 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm excited to be able to go back to the gym tomorrow. Who even am I? You're Mickey Noonan and you like the gym. I know, but if you'd told me that, like, even two years ago, I'd have laughed in your face, Jen, which would be very rude of me, particularly at the height of a pandemic, but I would have done it. <laughs> I'd have done it. It's very specifically my gym that I'm excited to go back to, Strong Her, because it's excellent. There was a brilliant moment last week where my coach, Abby, wanted to talk to me about something, so she just shouted, your snatch, at me, and I just was like, rude. <laughs> But it is a move for anyone listening who doesn't know that. It's a move, not my lady cave, not my happy valley. Speaking of which, Mm. and speaking of what's been getting my heart fucking pounding, I'm Hannah Zanlevy and I genuinely don't know if I can cope with the happy valley stress anymore. It's tense. I watched it yesterday and I went into the kitchen and I have got a lot of things on that I won't bore everyone with. But I have got a lot of stress in my life at the minute. But I was in the kitchen and I was having this nervous, just general nervous, nauseous feeling. And I thought, what is it that's bothering me? And I thought, it's fucking Tommy Lee Price. That's what's bothering me. I feel actually genuinely nervous. Basically, like my WhatsApp groups are like 98% Happy Valley at the moment. And all of my theories that I was spouting literally last Monday, a week ago today, they're all fucked already. (laughs) They're all done. All dead in a suitcase. Yeah. I have a Happy Valley question for you. And that is, do you think Sally Wainwright is aiding criminals? Because that disguise at the end was incredible. I was like, that's inspired. (laughs) I did think, oh, I wonder if anyone else is going to use this. (laughs) Yeah. Talking of incredible, Alex Sekaranu finally turned up in a lovely suit. He did look very smart. That's enough for me. I'm Jen Offord and I've spent the best £48 of my life, possibly, on an appointment with an osteopath. And I only say the best £48 of my life because I've never actually paid for a Simply Red ticket yet. (laughs) It's good to keep those options open of what's moving around on the, the top of the list there. So it's osteopath at the moment followed by Simply Red because you've not had to pay for it yet. As in joyous things that have happened to me recently. And I would, I'd, yeah, I'd say August is recent enough. Yeah, the osteopath was a joy. It really is a subjective emotion, isn't it? <laughs> if you told me when I was 18 that I'd have spent my time with a woman who enjoyed the gym and a woman who liked Simply Red, I don't know what I would have said to you. <laughs> I don't know what I'd have said either. I have no regrets. Life is a fairground, isn't it? And here we all are enjoying very different rides. Coming up, I talk to Guildford Refugee Aid volunteer Melanie Keane about how she's helping out refugees via the practical as well as therapeutic power of sewing. Sewing, Jen? Have you you ever thought about getting into sewing? Funny you should say that, Mick. (laughs) I chat to comedian Ellie Gibson about moist January, the perils of kiwi fruit and her excellent new podcast about sorting your shit out, sort your shit out. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking embarrassment in women's football and the gender gap in women's sport. And in Rated or Dated, it's an actual wang fest (laughs) as we watch 1998's Boogie Nights. But first, a big resignation, a landmark law and more of the old kickball. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. 
Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where it's uh, it's interesting to see Russell Brand trending on Twitter, eh? Yeah, wasn't what mm. I expected to see, but mm. another day, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So, Mick, let's not talk about him. Let's talk about the unexpected resignation last week of Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand. Now, I say unexpected because that's how it has been seen by most of the world. Yeah. Although the more cynical among us may point out that the Kiwis will be going to the polls again in October and the polls do not look great for the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Meaning she's either jumping before she's pushed or, to put a more positive spin on it, getting out of the way in the hope that someone without all the baggage that comes with being in charge for five years could still lead the party to victory. Yeah. For me, the most interesting thing about Ardern's departure is what a great example it gives of how easy it can be to admire a politician when you compare them to the shower of shit that's in <laughs> charge of your country and when you only see the big picture stuff and not the minutiae that affects the day-to-day life of people living in their jurisdiction. Yeah, totally. In 2003, I was in Rome, talking of Rome, Mickey, not long before we get to go there, but anyway. Whoop, whoop. In 2003, I was there just after the huge march against the war in Iraq, and I met some Americans who appeared to be some sort of international Tony Blair fan club. Did they have T-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> Almost. They fucking loved him, which was easy to understand when I took a moment to consider that their country was being run by George Bush. <laughs> yeah. And they haven't ever been used to having a free university education. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, I'm as guilty of this, their guy must be better than our guy as anyone. Barack Obama, Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham. They all seem like good guys, but given I don't have to live with the legacy of their decisions, I would say that, wouldn't I? Mm. And so back to Ardern, who undoubtedly impressed with her reaction to the Christchurch mosque shootings, both in terms of her compassion, big tick, and her restricting of gun ownership laws. Again, big tick. I mean, Mm -hmm. who'd argue with that? Well, gun fans in New Zealand, certainly. I'm not really that bothered about their arguments, if I'm honest, Hannah. Yeah, but you and I don't vote for her. And they do. Yeah, I know. That is true. She's also gone a long way to proving that motherhood shouldn't get in the way of a woman's career. And her general calm demeanour, even when a live broadcast was interrupted by an earthquake, showed a different kind of leadership than much of the rest of the world is offering right now. However... Her immigration policies were way more restrictive than her caring liberal persona would have Mm. you believe. In fact, I'm sure a lot of the people talking about her legacy have no idea of what these policies actually were. And her much lauded reaction to COVID was, to me at least, somewhere between overcautious and full dystopian nightmare, which I'm sure more Brits would agree with if they actually had to live under it. But all of this said, in the same way that it's easy to admire a TV writer for calling an end to their sitcom after just a few series rather than continue long after they've run out of ideas, and given that Boris Johnson had to be dragged out kicking and screaming, I do want to say well done to Arden for knowing when to quit. Yeah, absolutely. She's done it with dignity, I think, and absolute tip of the hat to her for that. Mm. And the COVID thing is really interesting because I think the first time she handled it and how they tackled it was you know it was incredibly restrictive but it worked but it became quite clear that there wasn't really an exit policy and then it it wasn't as effective the next time they tried Mm -hmm. it and you know New Zealand ended up getting smacked by a lot of deaths in the pandemic in the end as well so yeah it's interesting 
they hadn't built up any kind of natural immunity mm. and therefore they had to try and roll out their immunisation programme really, really, really quickly because there, there just wasn't anyone who'd really been in contact with COVID who had built up that much immunity as we had here. Yeah, and then it was vaccine by Monday, which a lot of people weren't yeah. pleased about. And I think it's really interesting. I have absolutely tweeted, why can't we have her? She seems amazing. She she has got that big heart that she hasn't been scared to wear on her sleeve, as well as like getting shit done. But it's this resignation and the BBC's ridiculously sexist headline, which was like, can women have it? Oh, for fuck's sake, fuck off and then come back so I can tell you to fuck off again. So I sort of read around it and a lot of the things that she went in there saying she was going to change have not got better and in some cases have got worse, such as child poverty, such as homelessness, mm. such as how expensive prices of houses are in New Zealand. It's crackers. And I say that as someone who lives in London. So that's really interesting. Obviously, COVID has its part to play in that. But it isn't, it's never, as you just said very beautifully, uh, it's never as black and white as it seems from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. Now then, Hannah, as you know, any good news in the Bush Telegraph tends to come with a soft scoop of shit. And yeah, the pattern continues here. Anyway, let's talk about Daisy's Law, one woman's tireless public campaigning, supported by the brilliant Centre for Women's Justice, which has resulted in landmark legal change. On January the 19th, the government announced that the long-awaited Victims Bill will extend the definition of a victim to include people who were born as a result of rape. Depending on how long it all takes to go through the official channels, it means England and Wales may be the first countries in the world to officially confer victim status to children born of rape. Well, that does seem like good news. Exactly. It's the whole women being raped bit that is the bad news, the soft scoop of shit that comes with it, yeah. Yeah. Daisy, that's not her real name, it's the name she uses while she's campaigning, she was born as a result of historic rape in the 1970s and her birth father was brought to justice in 2021. And she's long argued that children who are born as a result of rape are often profoundly impacted by the circumstances of their birth. Not really a surprise, I'd, right? I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah, and suffer a range of harms long into adulthood. The changes will cover all sexual offences that can result in pregnancy entitling those conceived as a result of rape access to information about their case and will also make it easier for victims to receive support from police and the criminal justice system whenever they may need it. The Cross-Party Justice Select Committee, which recommended the amendments on the back of Daisy's campaigning, found individuals who believe they were born as a result of rape currently find it, quote, unnecessarily difficult to get help. And that help includes information about their case, because mm. they're not defined at the moment by the code as victims, and current guidance around it is kind of, it's a bit muddy, it's, it's unclear. The change in law will entitle them to make a complaint to the police in their own right and to receive information and access support in the same way as any other victim of crime. Daisy said, I'm still waiting for it to sink in. I hope this changes things for others impacted by being born of rape and at the very least will make them feel they are not alone. Yeah, good for her. Mm, what an incredible thing to do for so many other people. Yeah, can't imagine finding out that information. At whatever age you find out that information, that's got to be horrific, hasn't it? It's interesting. 
I mean, it's interesting and it's horrific in in the way that many things that we cover on the Bush Telegraph are and, and in the in the podcast are. But it seems quite topical at the moment because the whole of the country is watching Happy Valley. Mm, and part yeah. of me is shouting at the TV screen, why are you being so soft with him? If you tell him what that man is, he will not want to see him. But of course, there are reasons to be so soft. Let's use Happy Valley as an example, albeit as a mm. fictional example. Ryan is a boy. Yeah. And therefore, you perhaps might believe more that you would inherit things from your father if you were a boy. I'm not saying that's true. Mm. I'm saying I could understand maybe why people would believe. Why a boy might think, will that make me a terrible person as well? Yeah, but and also the trauma of learning that about how you came into the world. There's yeah. so much stuff that will go with that and how do you unpack it how do you even start to unpack it obviously i i have no idea how that would be but yeah i got a little bit cross myself researching this story for how much i've gone why don't they just tell him at the, the television yeah. because obviously it's, it's a very complicated traumatic yeah. thing to share with someone i mean quite a lot of people who do actually know about their conception are a bit icked out by it anyway and that's when it's consensual between two people who love each other you know that's when mummy and daddy love each other very much uh-huh. They still don't want to hear it. Yeah, I, I need you to stop talking now, please, Hannah, about this <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, hello, good news. Where have you been recently slash all of my life? Oh, mate. <laughs> oh. So, Mick, I'm back on the incredibly solid ground that is my sports knowledge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because the Welsh FA last week announced that its men's and women's football teams will be paid equally until at least the twenty. 27 Women's World Cup. Whoop, whoop. The national men's and women's team released a joint statement. Want to hear what it said? Or do you want yes, some please. of my special football knowledge? Uh, I would like both. Can I have both? Does it have to be either or? It's either <laughs> or. We'll go with a quote. Okay, they said, Together, stronger has been the mantra across the Cymru national teams for us all, both on and off the pitch, as we look to put Wales on the world stage. As part of the FAW Strive Towards Equality, we are now proud to announce that our men's and women's teams have agreed to an equal pay structure for future international matches. We hope that this will allow future generations of boys and girls to see that there is equality across Welsh international football, which is important for society as a whole. With this agreement in place, we will now look ahead to the UEFA Euro 2024 and 2025 qualifying campaigns as we aim to see further success across both our senior teams in the near future. Great. That's good, isn't it? It is cracking. And now, and I don't wish to piss on anyone's parade, but you did say that they would be paid equally until at least the 2027 Women's World Cup. Yeah. I mean, are they like, and if the women don't pull it out of the bag, back to their part-time jobs. I think that's just when the contract they've just signed goes to. I think it, it is a longer term commitment to that because it's like at okay. least then. Yeah. Look at you, Pollyanna. Apologies for my cynicism, but I mean, oh. do you blame me? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where women get to pick their poison. Utter incompetence or malignancy? Um, I'll have incompetence, I think. Okay, okay. Telling, isn't it, that right now you probably don't know what area of public life <laughs> I'm about to talk about. No. Terrifying, isn't it, that once again it's the police. Oh, fuck. 
The stories of police-perpetrated abuse of women that have emerged since the murder of Sarah Everard by serving Met Officer Wayne Cousins in 2021 have been relentless and shocking, if less and less surprising. Just in case anyone was still convinced by the bad apple theory and therefore in any doubt that there's something very rotten going on within the Metropolitan Police Force, last week police officer David Carrick pled guilty to 49 offences. including Yeah including 24 rapes carried out, and all of that was carried out across 17 years. Carrick, like Cousins, and actually the two served in the same elite unit, was known as a wrongun within the force and was given the nickname Bastard Dave. His pattern of abusive behaviour was clear and the Met missed nine chances, nine chances to stop him. Fucking hell. I know. Nine. <laughs> like... Two is one is one too many. Yeah. But as Barbara Gray, the Met's head of professionalism, put it, quote, certainly I believe there was a pattern of behaviour that we should have identified. Would it have stopped him being a sex offender? Probably not. But they could have stopped him offending and maybe put him in prison earlier. Mm. Met Police Chief Mark Rowley has, you know, joined the people behind him and no no doubt the people in front of him and vowed radical changes to raise yeah. standards in the force, outlining a plan to win back public trust, which includes cracking down on wrongdoers in police ranks. I mean, yeah, will they have time to investigate any other crimes, though? Hmm. Excuse my cynicism, but seriously, we, we have been here before, haven't we? Yeah. These men aren't aberrations, but part of a much wider pattern. On the back of the Carrick scandal coming to light, Scotland Yard is currently investigating more than a thousand of its own. More than a thousand. How many, how many does it have? Do we know that? A thousand and three. I don't know, but I don't know <laughs> Yeah, I'd be interested to know what percentage, because eventually they're going to have to start investigating themselves, aren't they? Yeah. The Met has been placed in special measures by the police and inspectorate and is likely to stay there for this year and faces more scandals and hugely painful revelations to come. Radical reform and meaningful accountability for those in charge of making the changes is needed if any semblance of public trust, women's trust, is to be restored. They'll be right on that, yeah? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah. So The Guardian has an occasional column called The Secret Police Officer, written by a serving police officer in a non-metropolitan English police force. Here's a quote from the most recent column. I was involved in a rape investigation in which a female senior investigating officer directed me to pursue a line of inquiry solely intended to undermine the victim's first account so that we could close down the investigation before command had to divert significant resources to it. That was the day after the news of Carrick and his scores of crimes against women broke and nobody batted an eyelid. Do I think that that trust is being rebuilt any time soon? Probably not. Fuck me. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by, and I am going to use her own words here, comedian, one half of the Scummy Mummies double act, and bit of a pisshead, Ellie Gibson. Hello! Yes, that's right. That's sort of, yeah, that's my shtick apparently now, drinking and comedy. I mean, let's just be honest about it. I accidentally, as Ellie said that, I um, took my hair behind my ears and raised my glasses in that kind of like Eric Morgan way. 
Yeah, I think that's what Darren Brown would call a tell, isn't it? Does that rang a bell with you, Mickey, the drinking thing? <laughs> well, mm. we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Get into it, yeah, I'm sure. Now, a lot of people go through the new year, new me motions, whether that's more exercise, less biscuits, a changing career, webs. But you have gone a step further and started a new podcast about sorting your shit out. It's called Sort Your Shit Out. Tell us a bit more about it, please. Yes, it is called that. And you say a step forward. I'd say it's more like two step forwards, one step back. Because <laughs> <laughs> as you say, lots of people do like see January as a time to stop. Right, I'm going to give up booze or, what, or whatever it is, sugar or whatever for 30 days, you know. And, and that's I've done that before, you know, and that's great. And if that works for you, that's great. But I've found that for me, having done that and tried that, it was great. But I never at the end of the 30 days sort of thought, oh, Brilliant. I'm never going to drink again now mm. because, as I do say on the podcast, I really like drinking. Uh, <laughs> and I've always felt like, oh, exactly. If I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, they'd be like, my name's Sonia and I've been alcoholic. And I'd be like, my name's Ellie. I'm not really going to drink it. I don't really like it. And then they'd throw <laughs> me out. So I can't go. So, yes. Yeah, so I started like about just over a year ago, really. I started looking around for sort of resources about how to cut down on drinking. If you think it's about control, but you sort of want to cut back. And even just having that question in your mind, I found, makes you kind of go, maybe I am an alcoholic. Like, it's one of those questions where if you have to ask the question, you know the answer. And I was like, oh, no. So I thought, well, who can tell me if, I, if I'm just a normal British pisshead or an alcoholic? <laughs> and I was surprised at the sort of lack of stuff out there, really. So I thought, you know, well, I'll just make a podcast. That's what middle class people do now, don't they? If there's something you don't know anything about, you just make a podcast about it. Apparently, that's that's the thing. But you're right <laughs> about the information. It's very extreme, isn't it? It's either I'm an alcoholic, you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, seek a medical professional help, all of that, or I'm sober and I don't look back and I don't miss it. There's there's very little on this whole kind of more. Oh, God, I'm going to sound like Gwyneth Paltrow. More sort of conscious drinking and being sort of... Oh, oh, oh. I'm if sorry. You, listen, if you say the word journey, I'm ending the Zoom call. That's it. <laughs> cancel the whole thing. So, Ellie, tell me about your journey. No. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry? What? <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. I think when I was looking around, as I say, it was like Adrian Childs, who actually just done a Scummy Mummies podcast with. Like He did a, a TV show about it, and he he's written a book, actually. We talked to him about his book yesterday, but the book wasn't out when I started on my... <laughs> so especially for women actually there's a lot of sort of oh it's especially for mums as well it's wine o'clock and you know gin in a tin and prosecco and all of that and then at the other end of the spectrum yes you've got sobriety and i've gone sober and i've never better and again good for those people Mm -hmm. i've absolutely zero problems with people going sober i admire them very much and many days I wish my brain worked like that, but it just doesn't because we're all different, aren't mm-hmm. we? So I'm in the middle. I'm like, I like drinking, but, you know, I'd quite like to live long enough to drink more. And it's about <laughs> finding that balance, isn't it? It's, it's, good that's have, the balance. it's good to have ambition, Ellie. It's good to have ambition. That's the goal, yeah. <laughs> Alcohol is an endlessly fascinating subject, particularly because booze is very much the British drug of choice. And it's seen... As an acceptable drug of choice. Yes, I mean, it helps that it's legal. I think that is a big part mm. of it. And it is very easy to get. You know, I didn't realise till I started doing all this that, you know, I just take it for granted you can go into a supermarket and just buy a litre and a half of vodka, you know, <laughs> at 11 in the morning. They want bats and eyelid. And in places like Sweden, 
which, as we all know, is is a socialist democratic paradise on earth. You know, they they have special shops and people drive to Denmark and things, and it's all a bit more controlled. So I think, yeah, I mean, we, there's a lot of things we could blame the government for. Oh, if we but we haven't got time. Yeah, that's not even top of my fucking list. It's not even in the top fifty, no. to be honest. There is that, but also we use it. And again, I only noticed this, you know, when I started thinking about my own drinking more. For things like, obviously, celebrations. Oh, I'm sad because it's a funeral. Have a drink. Oh, I'm happy because it's a wedding. Have a drink. Mm-hmm. You know, birthdays, all of that. But even things like um, I went on a, a cookery thing, like a knife skills course. And as I was taking my coat off, they said to me, oh, would you like a glass of wine? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to handle incredibly sharp implements. And I'm here because I don't know how to use them properly. Why would I want to impair my physical <laughs> and mental ability at this moment? Whereas to be honest, yeah, a couple of years ago, I just gone, oh, yeah, lovely. I'll have a pint. Thanks very much. So it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's definitely acceptable. Yeah. And I think as well, when I look back at what I'll call my kind of drinking balance sheet, my booze balance sheet, I mean, the positives are not outweighing the bad decisions, the bad relationships, the existential level depression hangovers. And yet, I still like a drink. It's interesting. So what is your relationship with booze like? And what impact does it have on your life? Well, it's changed over the years. And I think that's part of the problem. How old are you? I'm 45 now. How old are you, Mickey? Same. Snap. There we go. Oh, look. Look at your baby face. You're either drinking less or you've just had less children. I've got no children. There you go. Oh, no wonder. No wonder. Oh, look like Cleopatra bathing in (laughs) white Russians every night. Um, Yeah, I think, uh, again, like a lot of women, this this might not be your story, but like a lot of women our age, at 15, you sort of started drinking Thunderbird and shit cider down Mm -hmm. the park at shit parties. Yep. Yeah, getting fingered at bus stops, all of that. And then, you know, went to university and that was, it was a huge part of university culture when I went off there and I drank far too much at uni. I did an English degree, which didn't help because there was rarely anything to fucking get up for. Same, at Sheffield. We were in the same year. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, but we weren't friends, if only. No, we were too pissed, mate. We were too pissed. (laughs) probably went out on like eight nights out together or something. Yeah. So did all that. And then, yeah, you go into your 20s, don't you? And again, I don't I'd, I'd be interested because I haven't worked in an office for years now because I've got a stupid job. But when I had a sort of real properish job, that was a step Friday night. You'd go out and you'd have a load of booze. And then so anyway, you know, again, I'm, I'm sure this is a trajectory many of us have, have been on. Then I became a mum and then, you know, yes, I was like looking forward to five o'clock. Right. Oh, I've got to, I'll get the fish fingers on and I'll open a bottle of wine. And that's my treat yeah. for having survived another day. You know, keeping these children alive <laughs> and not having thrown myself out of a window in rage. Mm-hmm. So um, and then the old, as I've sort of been in my 40s. Well, first of all, I'm a bit weirdly, I'm a bit happier in my life. Right, I've got my kids are a bit older. They're a bit, you know, at the moment slightly less high maintenance I'm out of nappies and all of that right mm-hmm. so they're doing that I've got this job that I really like with this other bird who I really like scummy mummies and we get to go I get to go around the country with my best mate and do comedy shows and as as jobs go that's not shit yeah so that's good my husband currently is quite nice and um, so <laughs> I'm doing all right and yet I was still drinking quite a lot and the hangovers were getting worse mm. and I started to have sort of anxiety is the technical yep. term yeah yeah 
And I kind of knew it was coming from the, I guess it was coming from the booze because I really had nothing to be anxious about. I was like, what am I, why am I waking up going, I've got this stuff to do. Yeah, I've got a big to-do list, but so have a lot of people. And then I started to notice it was worse on the days when I drank more. And I was like, oh, bollocks. (laughs) You'd have to look (laughs) at me drinking. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where you're at with it all. Is that familiar? It's sort of similar. I think for me, when the hangovers have got like just existential despair is the morning mm. after that properly made me go, this just isn't worth it. And actually, I spoke to Veronica Valley, who wrote the book Soberful last year for the podcast. She does a podcast also called Soberful, which is very good. She's a little bit more give it up altogether than than I'm willing to do. And then than what you're talking about on sort your shit out. But it did make me look at that balance sheet and go I'm not adding value to my life by doing this and also it's been made slightly easier by the fact I've become horrifically allergic to a lot of alcohol mostly red wine uh, which brings me out in a rash my throat gets constricted my lips swell up so I look amazing for 24 hours and then (laughs) like awful for a week what the fuck is that about I didn't even really know you could become allergic to things well, you chat about the menopause and how the effects of booze around women going through the peri and the menopause in episode yeah. two of Sort Your Shit Out. And we develop or quite often can develop histamine intolerance. And that doesn't mean that you can't handle any histamines. It means you've got too many of them. And then the hormones flowing around our bodies during the menopause heighten that. So you get even more. And it's oh. actually quite common. Sorry, everyone, oh, to become no. allergic to booze as you go through the peri. Because, yeah, if anyone says to me I'm allergic to wine, generally my first response is, yeah, okay. Does it bring give you headaches and make you vomit? How weird. <laughs> but, uh, no, that sounds awful. Oh, I'm I'm shitting it now because I've got, um, I'm allergic to kiwi fruit, which, again, is an allergy people always laugh at or think it's an affectation, but it makes my throat swell up and my eyes swell up and stuff. So, um, don't, I can see you stifling a laugh, Mickey. 70,000 people in the UK are allergic to kiwi fruit. It's not a laughing matter. I'm sorry. For kiwi you. fruit allergy awareness. I could make you feel a bit vomity. This, this might make a lot of listeners feel a bit vomity. I eat kiwi fruit like that apples, like furry skin and all. Oh. Again, now you're just showing off. That's that's my dream. I'd love to be able to do that. Okay, Mickey. Gibson. I'd love to okay, be able wait, to do wait that. Gibson. Red wine or kiwi fruit? Who's really winning here? Well, that's yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool. I'm going to open a bottle now just to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your lovely co-host this season, who is Coach Stephanie Chivers. She specialises in helping people change their relationship with alcohol, and you make it clear on the podcast that you two have actually worked together before starting a podcast together. Were you worried about delving into your drinking habits and your relationship with booze with a professional like that? Oh, definitely. And I certainly, when I sort of started working with Stephanie, it was not with a view to doing a podcast. It felt like a very private thing. And I, yeah, I had quite a bit of shame about it, I suppose. And it was one of the good things about working with her was I realised it's it's not about shame. And a lot of people uh, sort of have a difficult relationship with alcohol or want to change their relationship with alcohol. And, and, that's different and and those changes can look different for different people and that's all right as well so stephanie she's so she runs this thing called women who don't drink which again initially i was like oh is that going to be she's just going to tell me to stop drinking but not at all actually she herself as it happens doesn't drink about 15 years ago she sort of had a sort of rock bottom in her words where she 
that meant that she changed her relationship with booze and then she's worked in all sorts of drug and alcohol addiction or she sorry she says um alcohol is a drug all sorts of drug addiction services and she's brilliant but i like her because she's very non-judgmental so we would have these zoom meetings she would make me list my drinking which you know all the drinks i'd had that week which is revelatory yep and uh, you have to look at it and go, right, okay. And then we look at why I drank so much on certain nights or whatever. And and we talked about values, which, again, something I'd never done was thought a bit like, I don't know, like, be nice. I don't know. Um, but, again, once you sit down and start to look at actually what is important to you and you're really honest about it, uh, that's quite interesting. So, yeah, it was great. And I just had such a fascinating, I found it so fascinating to talk to and so helpful. And then I started talking to other people about it. And my husband worked with her as well. And I started talking to other people and they started going, yeah, oh, I need that. Like, yeah, I I think I drink too much, but I don't want to go sober and I've got nowhere to go. So that's how it all started, really. You're quite often the voice in defence of alcohol on the podcast because, you know, as you said at the top, as you say in your podcast, you know, you still like a drink. I do love that Stephanie always goes, a drink though, Ellie. A, 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 a one drink, right? That She's great. I love that she does it every single time you say that. Amazing. She's very on brand, yes. <laughs> but you're learning to love some rules, right? Yes. Is love too strong a word? No, love. I love a rule. I love. I love a highlighter pen. I like a notebook. I like a bullet journal, <laughs> Mickey. I like all of that. Um, and again, this. I think this does come down to what kind of person you are, right? So, do you know Gretchen Rubin, who does the Happier podcast, and she has this thing called the Four Tendencies, where you're an upholder, where you love following rules, and you always do what you're told, or you're a questioner, where you'll do what you're told if you can see the reasoning to do it mm. you're an obliger which is basically a people pleaser so we're about if you accountable to someone or you're a rebel where you're just like fuck you to everyone i'm not do- i won't do what you tell me yeah i'd call that the hannah dunleavy category that last one <laughs> <laughs> well i'm definitely a questioner with upholder tendencies mm-hmm. so i uh, there's a little quiz actually if you want to don't know so it's quite interesting but anyway so i like a rule but i have to know the reason for the rule yeah and, you know, if the reason is, well, you know, if you drink less, you'll have less anxiety, you'll be a bit happier, you might be a bit of a better mum, and you're not going to die as young. Those are all good reasons, Pretty good reasons, aren't they? yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it's good to start maybe with, first of all, thinking about what kind of person you are, but then, and then with the rules, again, what I've discovered is, because I was worried Stephanie was going to go, here are the 12 commandments, and you must follow them to the letter. Mm. No wine on Tuesdays, blah, blah, blah. But she gave me a load of rules and I've sort of, I pick and choose from them. And also again, that changes over time. Do you know what I mean? So at the moment for January, I'm doing moist January. Yeah. I've heard it called damp January, but yours has got much more of an ick factor. Thank you. Moist. (laughs) It's not catching on Mickey. I'm so disappointed. No one's using the hashtag. So it sounds so like a venereal disease. I'm surprised it's not catching on. It's wrong with the word moist. I like it because it makes people freak out. Why though? I don't. Oh, a lovely moist cake. Oh, yes, please. That's no one wants a dry cake, do they? Uh, I'm trying to think of another positive context. Moist, moist hands. No, you're right. That doesn't work. <laughs> moist face. We all know where this is going. Everyone's switched um, off now. It doesn't matter what you yes. say after this. No one is listening anymore. <laughs> no, they started vomiting at the word journey and they haven't stopped anyway. So, yeah, so for January, I'm trying to do max four days a week max three drinks at a time 
some weeks I've done better and I've only drunk three days. And like last Sunday, I had some friend rounds for, rounds for lunch and I had a lot more than three drinks. <laughs> but as I've learned, one of the good things about moderating versus giving up entirely is that you don't have to start with start from scratch if you fuck it up, mm-hmm. you know, which again is going to work differently for some people. Some people might use that as an excuse to fuck it up every day. But I have a level of sort of guilt around that that means if I fuck up, I can start again the next day and I don't feel like I fucked the whole thing and it's pointless and I might as well get shit faced every day. So, yeah. So I don't know. Have you got any drinky rules, Mickey? I've started doing something which I quite enjoy because there's loads more alcohol free options than there used to be. If we'd done this even like five or 10 years ago. Right. And they're delicious. So I really like mm. Brewdog's Punk as Fuck um, or Punk AF as they have it on the tin so they can have it in supermarkets. And it's delicious. It tastes like a really tasty beer. And so if you're getting ready and you would usually have a drink while you were getting ready or open a bottle of wine or a Prosecco or whatever, I have a couple of those. So I'm not yeah. prinking, as I believe the kids call it. <laughs> prinking? Prinking. Pre-drinks. Oh, God. You're, oh, is that it? Oh, yeah. gosh, you are down with the kids. Right, I'm going to try that on my 11-year-old yet later. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if he says yes, then probably have a bigger chat. Uh, around <laughs> that but yeah so I found that really helpful and also being allergic to booze has proven really helpful to reducing Ooh. but I mean I don't recommend it and for a while I took a couple of antihistamines and powered through like a brave little soldier that's right that's my girl <laughs> you come on that's the sort of attitude that got Britain through the war there we go exactly just power through medical disaster never mind drink through it take medication mm. exactly but well a done. nurse a nurse sat me down and just said please please stop doing that don't don't do that and I was like okay it, it is kind of itchy so there we go <laughs> sorry it's not funny <laughs> it is, I, I'm gonna put a kiwi fruit on this zoom call if you keep mocking me don't. someone did that to me once again when I had an office job he didn't believe that I had a kiwi fruit allergy and thought I was making it up and he went to the market and bought three kiwi fruit and hid them in my desk drawer and then my eyes started like weeping and my throat swelled up and uh, Just from uh looking felt at them. incredibly bad. I can't be in this is in the same room as a lot of them. They seem to have different levels of histamine, it's not always but I've been in rooms and um, it started to happen and I've gone, Is there kiwi fruit in this room? And they've gone <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I can't not laugh. <laughs> I could die. And if I believed in heaven, I'd be excited for that conversation at the pearly gates. Seriously. No, it is the world's world's shittest superpower. I can detect a kiwi fruit (laughs) sight unseen. Just call me an X-Man. Just, you know, put me in the academy with Wolverine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've gone wildly off topic, but I'm having a lovely time. Listen, you should have done the whole podcast about my kiwi fruit allergy. Maybe then we'd have something to talk about. Please come back and talk to me about that in more depth at some (laughs) point. So obviously the first series of Sort Your Shit Out is focusing on balancing the booze. Can you give us a sneak peek into what other topics you will be covering as the seasons progress? No, because I haven't thought of them yet, That's, really. I, I mean, it's very <laughs> made unfair, zero so. No, at the moment, in all seriousness, Helen and I uh, are, not to plug the show, but we are, we're getting our greatest hits. We've been together as Scummy Mummies for 10 years That's now. amazing. So we're doing our greatest hits tour kicking off in February. We're just busy working out which of our many comedy songs about tits and wine are the best ones. So we're doing that. You could do like a Jive Bunny mega mix. Oh, we've got many mega mixes. Oh, we've got a little bit of Gruffalo stance here, a little bit of, you know, 
Uh, what else have we got in the new one? Anyway, um, oh, we do. We did an ABBA medley in the last show. Can you it's hear very... the mums in Nando's? It's all of that. It's very strong. It's very topical, ABBA. Also, just for the listeners, as I said earlier, I don't have children, but I fucking love a scummy mummy show. Joyous. Absolutely. I oh, took, thanks, mate. I took my mates who had children and they were like fucking on the floor when you were doing the song about getting a shoe on. And I was like, <laughs> I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> Oh, good. Uh, yes, one of the nicest bits of feedback we ever had for the podcast was someone said, I don't have kids, but I really like your podcast because it reminds me to take my pill. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's just delightful. It was lovely. So, listeners, a refreshing ear glass of Sort Your Shit Out is poured out, I'm regretting this analogy, on all podcast platforms every Tuesday. Oh, must be Tuesday. And it's warm and funny and informative and helpful and it's Ellie. And there's an incredible revelation about Stonehenge and I heartily recommend it. Blew my mind. Can I just say, that was an exquisitely eloquent and articulate way to end the podcast. Have you got an English degree from Sheffield University by any chance? Mate. That was beautiful. Mate, I've got half an English degree from Sheffield University. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) Go on, imagine imagine if you'd finished it. I did finish, but I did English and philosophy. So, you know, half English, half philosophy. Did you actually go to the philosophy lessons? I just did a lot of thinking in my own time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We realised that at the Justice and Gender Philosophy module, the lady gave you a handout. So there was three of us in my hall doing it. So we just took it in turns to go once every three weeks. So it's fine. That's fair enough. (laughs) But I did. We did have to read a lot of books. We were supposed to read a lot of books. Mm. I played a lot of Tomb Raider, uh, (laughs) but then did become a video games journalist. So it all worked out. See, you knew, you knew. And now you're you're doing a show about drinking and you've done a lot of stuff about. So in fairness, you nailed it. You totally nailed it. This is it. Do what you know. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie, where can people find out about the very many pies that you are fingering? Oh, so many, so many pies. (laughs) And yes, so Sort Your Shit Out podcast, that's available wherever you get your podcast. So is the Scummy Mummies podcast, uh, which you do with Helen Thorne. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ellie Gibson, and we're at SISO Podcast, which is catchy, on Instagram or at Scummy Mummies. And scummymummies.com for tickets to our live show, as recommended by Mickey. Ellie, that was a very eloquent and articulate way of summing up where people can find you. Have you got, have you got an English degree from Sheffield University? Yeah, only a 2-1 though. I'm joined on Zoom by Melanie Keane, volunteer at the Lighthouse Woking and Guildford Refugee Aid. Hello, Melanie. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you for joining me. I wrote about you in one of the newsletters, the mail out before Christmas, because I heard about an initiative that you were running via the Foldline newsletter, because listeners of the Mm -hmm. podcast know that I am now these days a keen some people say sewist, which I'm not sure is actually a word, but mm-hmm. sewist, dressmaker, <laughs> sewer is probably what I would have said, but who knows. So you started up an initiative helping refugees learn to sew. Can you tell me a little bit about the initiative, what it is and how you came to be involved in it? Well, I was asked if I knew anybody who could sew. And like Jen, I am a very enthusiastic dressmaker. I started off with patchwork and then moved on to making clothes, which I really enjoy. And I wanted to share that with other people. And when I was asked to do this, I thought, well, I'll just take on the challenge. There was nothing set up there. 
there were women there who were desperate to sew, to make things, to be creative, to be useful, just to have some community time as well. And so I went along with no idea about what I would do or what the women would be like, what the difficulties would be, what the joy of it would be either. So I just started with a blank sheet and went from there. So this is at a refugee centre, isn't it, that you're helping these women out? And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the kinds of people that you're helping, sort of where they're from and, and, and what sort of events have caused them to be in the UK. Yes, well, I volunteer at a centre in Surrey and there are about 160 people there. They're all families or single women and they've come from all over the world, really. There's people there from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, El Salvador, Pakistan. There's some people from Ukraine, Georgia, all all sorts of different countries. And so then, of course, they all speak different languages. So language has been a big challenge. And they've come to England for various reasons. They've come from a place where they're persecuted. They've come from war zones. And they've also come from countries where there's no future for women. The girls can't go to school. They have to wear restricted clothing. There's no future for them. Week to week, I only get involved in conversations if they bring up where they've come from and any trauma. But apart from that, I'm just there to provide a couple of hours of uh, happy time. Someone asked you if you knew anyone who'd be able to teach them to sew. So that was obviously a skill that was sought Mm -hmm. after. Why is sewing a useful skill for these people to be learning? I mean, it's kind of obvious, really, but I just wondered if you could tell me like the the sort of things that, that you do. Half the group can sew really, really well. And they make amazing outfits without measuring tapes. And they cut out the fabric on the floor to begin with. So they they know how to sew. They've made garments, you know, for years. They just need the fabric and they just want to get it on. And they want to make useful things. They want to make clothes for their children. They want to alter their clothes. They want to make casual clothes to wear, you know, when they're in their rooms. Because they don't have any money. Um, and then the other people in the group, they can't sew. And so we're teaching them simple things, how to use a machine, how to sew in straight lines, how to read a pattern. And they learn so quickly. We started off with scrunchies and then we moved on to gift bags. So then we progressed on to tote bags. And now this week we started making zipped pouches. And with the women that can sew, I'm now trying to get them to make better quality clothes rather than just make something really quickly and put some elastic in it. I'd like to help them to make fitted clothes if they want to, something a bit more stylish and learn new skills. But I've actually learned quite a lot from them. So what have you learned? I have learned about measuring. I know that that's a a meter um, and how they make, how they attach trim to clothes. They'll, They'll pick up a piece of lace or ribbon and I turn my back and it's stitched onto something or they've made little tiny pleats around a neckline. The other thing that fascinates me is they will take a piece of material and, and cut something out without a pattern and then they'll put it on and then they'll, they don't even pin it actually, they just do it by eye and they might have a friend with them and they say I'll oh, take it in there and out there or whatever and so they slip it off and 
do an alteration, put it on again, and it all fits perfectly. So I have learned not to be so obsessed with working out my size and cutting out the pattern properly. So as well as being practically useful, you know, I'm someone who sort of struggles to keep their brain quiet and I need a bit of distraction. Something like sewing that requires focus, but not Mm -hmm. on your thoughts and not on it. Do you know what I mean? It kind of drowns out the background noise, doesn't it? So I do actually find sewing quite meditative, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that sewing is therapeutic as as well as practically useful? Do you think it, it does it help you? Does it help the the women that you're working with? I definitely agree with it being therapeutic because I I have found it therapeutic and I got into sewing through having some mental health issues and it did keep me focused. It got me out of bed in the morning. It made me achieve something and I was quite proud that I'd actually made something and being creative. And so for these women, sometimes they come in and they're quiet and um, sort of subdued and, and they get they go out feeling sort of quite happy and chirpy. And you can hear the chitter chatter. Some of the things they make are for their rooms. They might make a cushion or at the beginning they wanted to make pillowcases to, to put into their rooms. So it's something about making their place more homely. I think it's uh, just a, a big distraction for them. They're basically in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. Their children go to school, the women are bored. Mm. They've been there since March and it can take up to three years to be able to be settled in this country. And they come here and they're full of hope and they're looking forward to a new life in a new country. And then eight or nine months later, they're still in a room with their kids with no prospects. So... Getting out and doing something creative, fun, something they can wear, it's useful. It really lifts their spirits. And it is a very popular activity, which they've asked me to expand. Because you got into sewing during the pandemic, so you're quite new to this as well, aren't you? And have you, like me, found that you've become quite obsessed quite quickly? Well, I used to do patchwork. I did patchwork for a couple of years. And then... When we had to make all those scrubs for the NHS, a, a friend taught me how to do it because I had never made anything before. And after 100 pairs of scrubs, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, I can make pyjamas. Uh, and so then I did that. And then I bought a, a simple book and started making things. And I went through the book. And, yeah, I did become quite obsessed by it. the fabrics, the patterns, and the discipline of of the routine of, of sewing and all the different stages that you go through did keep me focused and busy and happy. I think that is something that can bring you quite a lot of confidence as well, can't it? I think not not just sewing, I think all sorts of things like new skills, basically. Just learning something new as an adult that you, you couldn't do before, it can bring you, yeah, it can, I don't know, I've always found that these things make me feel a bit like, I don't know, competent. And I think competence breeds confidence. Yes, I, I'd agree with you there. Sometimes I look at some of the things I made and, and I think, how did I do that? And learning new skills at my age, I am over 50. I'm never too old to learn to sew. You're never too old to learn anything. I'm I'm 40 and I'm currently learning to drive. So um, it's a, a brand new thing for me. And it's not coming as easily as, as sewing, let me tell you, Melanie. <laughs> so. It's so supportive, the sewing community. Yeah. 
I mean, I've met you, Jen. You have. And I've met so many interesting people since I started volunteering. Yeah, it's just a whole new world. What would you say are good ones? If anyone's listening and they've recently taken up sewing or, you know, they want to they wanna get more involved in, in the community, where, where are your kind of like go-to places to chat to people about, about what you're making and, and what you might be doing next? So Over 50, which is a worldwide organisation now, which has really grown. They are so supportive and very encouraging. And there's a podcast called The So Mindful Podcast, run by Jackie Blakemore. The Fold Line, obviously. Mm-hmm. They are full of great suggestions. I really don't know how they put out so much information, but they're very encouraging. If I'm struggling with something, last week I asked a question about how to determine which needle was in which machine, a system for that. <laughs> and I've got back all sorts of solutions. Is that like their Facebook page where you engage with the fold line? Because I've got some questions about a pair of trousers I'm trying to make. <laughs> oh, they'll be brilliant. Yeah, just onto their Facebook page. Okay. I've got these trousers I'm going to make and I'm feeling quite daunted by the prospect, I have to say. I'd like a sew-along video. That's why I like the Friday Pattern Company because they always have a video that shows you how to <laughs> how to make ah. the item. Well, if you're looking for something like that, mm. then Flying Bobbins, they always have sew-alongs to everything they release. And the lovely Guthrie Garney in Birmingham, they have really good so long this is a different subject but when I was feeling quite down last year before I started volunteering I'd just come out of hospital I wanted to get back into sewing because I'd been obsessive and I thought well I used to enjoy this why aren't I enjoying it now and I couldn't get motivated so put out on so a 50 podcast I was doing a sew along and did anyone want to join me and I had about 10 people from all over the world who joined in and we chose our fabric and showed that to each other we chose our size, um, I set some deadlines and we did some photos going along and that was a really good thing to do because it got me sewing again. And I had encouragement from these people all over the world, it was amazing. When we talk about noise, there is a lot of noise in the press at the moment about the asylum-seeking crisis and uh, some people have voiced opinions in the media that it's like a holiday camp for people mm. who are here under the asylum system and from the discussion we've had via email and and just now it doesn't sound that way to me i wondered how you see it what is life like for these people in the uk the word that comes to mind is dreary i go into the facility and there's just a down atmosphere there's people sitting around there's little children running around the only life that is in the facility is when the children come back from school because the children absolutely love going to school because they're learning. But it's it's um, dreary, it's mundane. They are given food, access to food, three, four times a day, which goes in the microwave, get apples and bananas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's they're given eight pounds a week to spend on things, which we know doesn't go very far. And they've come from the other side of the world with such hope and this interim period is a period of sort of time wasting and and hopelessness so doing a little bit of sewing bit of light relief hope to make their time a little less dreary and productive and creative and fun and equip them for when they leave as well 
So with that in mind, there are things that we can actually do to help with what you're doing. What are you looking for in terms of donations from people if they happen to have things lying around? Well, we do need some more machines because at the moment we have to share machine time. They, they have about an hour a week, which isn't a lot. Um, scissors, haberdashery type items. Our main need is for fabric, enough for dressmaking. So each person would need sort of two metres and they might want to make a dress, which is two and a half metres. So fabric, really, that's our ongoing need, yeah. So you might have, I don't know, like an old duvet set knocking around at home. That would be two metres near enough. Or you might have acquired a sewing machine that you're not using that is gathering dust. I know we've got a few that are not in good working order anymore. But what you're looking for are sewing machines that are in good working order. If you happen to have one knocking around that you're not using... I mean, why aren't you using it? But also don't use it. Give it to Melanie and give it to the Refugee Centre because they will make great use of it. And if you're looking for an excuse to buy yourself a new machine and your old one is great, but just not what you need, then I'd love to have it. Of course. Treat yourself and treat the Refugee Centre at the same time. That is a brilliant idea. If people want to make a donation to you, say, you know, we might have some listeners who are like, well, you know, I'm happy to buy two metres of fabric and send them in because that's a nice thing to do. Where can people contact you to to discuss how they make a donation? Well, we do have an Amazon gift wish list, Mm -hmm. which we'd love people to contribute to. Or you can contact me on Facebook under my name, Melanie Keane, or on Instagram at Melanie Keane. It's all very, very simple. And I'll put the link to the Amazon wish list in our podcast notes as well so people can find that. Anyone who links to fabric companies who want to donate new fabric, that would be amazing. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. It was lovely to talk to you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, or if you prefer, the Emma Hayes appreciation section of the podcast. I believe Hannah gave you some good news on women's sport in the Bush Telegraph, and I'm pleased about that because there is bugger all to be found here, I'm afraid. Now, let's talk first of all about the Chelsea-Liverpool match at the weekend, which was postponed six minutes after the match started because of a frozen pitch. The pitch had been assessed earlier that morning and found to be okay to play on, but the referee stopped the match because they said it was unsafe. It's a common complaint, apparently, in women's football, abandoned matches due to poor conditions, and obviously it's annoying for fans who've travelled to matches, and it's difficult for teams because their training schedules work around their matches. And of course, it causes congestion in the fixtures when matches then have to be fit into the remainder of the season. Congestion in the schedule is more of a problem when you're a side like Chelsea and likely to be making the latter stages of other tournaments like, for example, the FA Cup or the Champions League. After the match was abandoned, Chelsea manager Emma Hayes herself got on the microphone at the King's Meadow ground to explain why to fans who turned out for the game, which again is just unthinkable that a manager of a men's top flight side would bother to do that. But then again, a men's top flight match wouldn't have been abandoned six minutes into the game. Shrugs. 
Hayes was fuming when she spoke in a post-match, if we're calling it that, interview after the decision had been made. Not because she disagreed with the decision and not just because of the shambolic nature of it, but because of, once again, the lack of parity. It was laughable, she thought, that the pitch was ever judged to be fine. And secondly, why don't the women have under-soil heating, which is enjoyed by men's teams playing in the big stadiums? The point of under-soil heating, in case you hadn't guessed, is to stop the pitch from freezing, not to keep their precious little trotters warm. We have got to take our game seriously, Hayes said. It's not for the managers to decide if it's on, it's up to the FA and officials. But there is no FA here, she added, and they need to be at our games to executive those decisions. As always, I love her. I don't, however, love the FA. I have said quite often in response to the often irrelevant argument that women can't fill stadiums that of course they can't if they're not allowed to play in them. This is in the same vein, I think. There is simply more appeal in attending a match at a big stadium. The infrastructure is there for a start. You can get a nice pie or a not nice pie (laughs) in some cases. But more fundamentally, you can actually get there. You're not hamstrung by a lack of public transport servicing the ground. Also, It's just fun to go and see these big stadiums. Some of them are incredible feats in engineering and architecture. But now added to this is the uncertainty that matches are actually even going to go ahead. I mean, you're not travelling from Liverpool to Kingston-upon-Thames if you think that is a realistic outcome, are you? This sorry episode feeds nicely, or not nicely if you prefer, into something Jessica Ennis-Hill wrote about for the Telegraph Women's Sports section last week, which she described as the gender gap in sports science. We know there's a gender gap in sport, we know there is a gender gap absolutely everywhere, and we probably wouldn't even be here if there wasn't. But the sports science gap is a huge problem in women's sport, which at worst like the circumstances rightly bemoaned by Hayes, sees huge risks being taken with women's bodies and health. Periods really are the thin end of the wedge here, but in itself a topic well worth dedicating more research to. In recent months, we've seen Arsenal player and Lionesses captain Leah Williamson chatting about endometriosis, a condition which she suffers from and the impact that it's had on her career. On the same team even, we've got power couple Beth Mead and Viviane Miedemar, both out currently with anterior cruciate ligament ruptures. That is harder to say than I imagined when I wrote this. These are thought to be four to six times more likely in female footballers and no one knows why. Shrugs, again. We know absolutely balls all, she said, I paraphrase here, obviously, about the impact of pregnancy and childbirth on athletes, writing about the research she was forced to undertake herself after returning to competition following the birth of her eldest child, Reggie, because of the lack of understanding she subsequently had of her own body. It is a bleak picture that she paints. I also wanted to talk today about gymnast Ellie Downing, who's just announced her retirement from the sport aged 23. One of the reasons she's given is because of treatment she's suffered since speaking out in 2020 about what she called normalised and ingrained abuse in gymnastics. We know all about that. There have literally been inquiries into it. It's not, you know, news to any of us. And yet, she believes, having not been picked to represent Team GB at the Tokyo Olympics, that this actually affected her selection chances. And she said, ultimately, I knew I couldn't carry on because I didn't think I would ever get picked again. 
So yeah, I'm sorry, this week's JOTB is a bit of a downer because for all the progress we've made in recent years, it's very clear to see the ways in which we continue to fail our female athletes. I'll be back next time, if indeed you'll have me, for more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated, Jen. Which film that we watched this week is also the answer to the question, which nights are the best in town? (laughs) Always the best in town. (laughs) This week we watched 1998's Boogie Nights, an early effort of Paul Thomas Anderson, who both wrote and directed the film about a young man's entry into the (laughs) pornography business during the industry's so-called golden age. The Golden Age ran between 1969 and 1984 and saw the era of pornographic films depicting explicit sex first receiving wide theatrical distribution in the US. So what I'm saying is some people, but crucially not all the people involved, were making a shitload of cash. The film covers the period following shortly after the end of said golden age as well, with the introduction of porno videos, which meant audiences could have a wank at home. But with mass production came a, I I suppose, diminished quality of flick. At least that's what Jack Horner thinks. More on this later. The film was made on the back of PTA's mockumentary short, The Dirk Diggler Story. It was his first proper production and was based on the life of real-life pornographic actor John Holmes. You know, there's actually another film about John Holmes as no, well. No, I didn't. More explicitly, Wonderland, that stars Val Kilmer, because he was ended up being involved in a murder, John Holmes. Oh, did he? That is interesting. So the film, not the Dirk Diggler story, Boogie Nights we're talking about now, helped to establish the career of then up-and-coming actor Mark Wahlberg as a leading man. He stars as 17-year-old Eddie Adams, who works as a dishwasher at a nightclub after dropping out of high school. Wahlberg is ably assisted by an absolutely astounding supporting cast, including (laughs) Julianne Moore, the bandit himself, Burt Reynolds... (laughs) Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Heather Graham, Nicole Parker and a fucking wonderful Philip Seymour Hoffman. It made me sad mm. a little bit. Mm. While working at the nightclub, Adams catches the eye of filmmaker Jack Horner, played by Reynolds, who can apparently spot a massive wang at 50 paces. <laughs> Can't you, Jen? <laughs> Always. No, I mean, I was genuinely baffled by this part of it because you're just like, how are you honing in on this guy? Is it all just like a total coincidence? Is he meant to be really attractive? I mean, I don't know. It's sight and smell. They're <laughs> my two tips. He doesn't particularly carry himself like a guy with a big wang, like either in terms of like, you know, the mechanics of it or just the confidence of it. Genuinely baffled by it. But anyway, so he's fed up of living with his completely one dimensional abusive mum and mm. Adams adopts the name Dirk Diggler and joins the ragtag family of sorts of Horner and his partner Amber, who's the leading lady in a number of his films. Diggler is a big star, winning any number of awards, and his fame allows him access to the glamorous world of Corvettes, wooden shoes and shirts so man-made you can almost hear the static over the disco tunes blaring from the light-up dance floor. This is imported Italian nylon. What are you saying? (laughs) Fucking hell. I could actually smell the sweat on him anyway. (laughs) But Cal Surprise, there is a dark side too for William H. Macy's emasculated little Bill that his completely one-dimensional wife who won't stop nobbing people and who he kills before turning the gun on himself in a move that literally never gets mentioned again. 
That's Weird. true. They just have a portrait of him in the uh, in the gallery. It took me a while to figure out that was meant to be him. Oh my god, that art is amazing. <laughs> but maybe we'll get to that. <laughs> for Amber, it's not being able to see her son. For Roller Girl, a roller skating starlet. It's being disrespected by horrible men. Drugs are at the heart of a lot of our protagonist Eddie slash Dirk's problems. He's taken too many and he can't get an erection anymore. And if massive erections are your thing, well, mm-hmm. it's not looking good for the longevity of his career. <laughs> I love that Hannah just shrugged like, take them or leave them, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he falls into a downward spiral with Buddy Reed, which lasts about half an hour too long and includes prostitution, bungled drugs heists, a demo tape being held hostage by a recording studio. But can he turn his life around again? The film was a success, making $43 million from a budget of $15 million and was well received by critics, earning a raft of award nominations, including three Academy Awards in the process for Moore and Reynolds and for PTA for Best Screenplay, although it didn't win any of those. Reynolds won a Golden Globe in the end, and it was a big gig for him. His career had been on the decline for some time by this point, and he was offered a role in PTA's subsequent film, Magnolia, though he turned it down because... Sad face, he hated working on Boogie Nights and he hated PTA and he later publicly said that he never watched it the whole way through even. Mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg both regretted being in the film and it was huge for both really? of them. Really? Yeah, Mark Wahlberg mm. said it was top of his list of films that he's sorry he made. I find that incredible. He's asked for forgiveness from the Catholic Church for making it because he's a really like diehard Catholic and he asked for forgiveness for that in general from the Catholic Church and said it was his number one regret of a film that he made. And he asked for forgiveness directly from the Pope for making Ted, which just really tickles me. The Pope apparently looked a bit nonplussed. Flipping heck. Well, I mean, I'm going to throw it out there and say, obviously, he's sadly no longer with us, Burt Reynolds, but I, I think he should have watched it the whole way through. So much like Burt, I hadn't watched it the whole way through until last week. Had either of you guys watched it before? Can I just on a tangent say that you are very like Burt Reynolds? It is true. (laughs) I've often thought so. Yes, I had seen it before. Yeah. I had never seen it before. No. I feel like Hannah, you're probably, I don't know, Mick, maybe you as well. I know we have talked about There Will Be Blood before, but are you a big fan of, uh, of Paul Thomas Anderson? I really like Magnolia. I I was kind of out on my own with There Will Be Blood because I didn't really like it. That's not necessarily true. I didn't think it was as good as everyone else seemed to think it was. And I can't imagine on an occasion I will ever watch it again. He is, to me, quite a mixed bag. In fact, I would say the thing about Boogie Nights is Boogie Nights in itself is Paul Thomas Anderson's career a microcosm for me. I think some bits of it are genius and some bits of it are awful. Agreed, agreed. Okay, obviously he's he's a big name in Hollywood and he's made some like mm. he's been nominated for eight Academy Awards apparently That's and not won any of them. But I haven't actually watched that many of his films. I have watched There Will Be Blood and uh, it just I can't think of it without laughing now because my mate whenever we talk about it she just goes I'm finished because apparently that's what he does at the end in the like midst of this horrific scene anyway um daniel day lewis that is i have a friend who every time he would he would tell me a story at one point he would then say at the end and then i drink your milk <laughs> and it works he just works as a joke just just drop it in every so often i don't really think of pta as being like a particularly lols guy but this was a lot... Oh, it's fucking hilarious, this It's film. a lot funnier than I remember the bits of oh. it that I've seen before. So did you, yeah, did you find it funny? To me, there are two bits, well, three, I suppose, that are just absolutely knockout funny. 
I mean, everything John C. Riley yep. does is fucking yeah. hilarious in this. He manages to be an odd mix between Jason Sudeikis dancing in the back <laughs> of, uh, the of What's Up With That <laughs> so funny. and uh, Joe Bluth, which just works, and also the Beastie Boys sabotage <laughs> video. Yeah. Everything that they do in that film together, that film series, is hilarious. But for me, the absolute fucking highlight and the best thing in this by a country mile is Alfred Molina when they go and try and rip off Alfred Molina. And he's just being insane. And that guy's just throwing the firecrackers and every time they jump and everything about that scene is wonderful. Yeah, I think... John C. Riley's fucking magic in this. I film. absolutely agree about John C. Riley. He's playing it like he's in a comedy. That's how he's playing that character. Mm. He's so good, and he yeah. looks so young. And I know it's thirty years old, but he looks yeah. he looks so young. It's incredible. Alfred Molina. I know most from Spider Man, I suppose. Yeah, that scene is hilarious, but it also made me incredibly tense. Just the constant yes. firecrack. It's so well done, and it's a standout, I think, because the second half is just really overlong. And I was like, okay, and it is, and yeah. it, the lols kind of really tail off in that second half. It becomes incredibly depressing and much more violent, obviously. But I actually find Mark Wahlberg's Dirk Diggler, the kind of naivety of the first yeah. half, really funny. He's just so charming and like this proper little innocent going into this grubby world, this grubby underworld. But yeah, John C. Riley just steals every scene he's in. Just when they're in the recording studio mm. and he's just dancing in the background is so, so funny. And when he's like, yeah, yeah, what do you bench? What do you bench? Let's say it together. Let's say it together. It's so good. I love him. So yeah, I laughed way more than I thought I was going to laugh because I didn't realise it was supposed to be a comedy. But it is no. sold as a comedy as well. So Yeah, it is. Yeah, but I didn't... I In my mind, it was a lot more like a dramatic, even thriller type thing. It's basically Goodfellas of the porn industry though, right? That sort of family of a grubby underworld. I don't think any of them are like that bad. I don't even think Jack is that awful. No, I don't think Jack's awful. I think in Goodfellas, most of them are like genuinely horrible people. Whereas in this, Mm. I don't think any of them are particularly horrible people. I think even Jack, I mean, I guess you could say he grooms them, but even Jack, like he kind of cares about them, doesn't he? I don't think they're bad people. I think cocaine is one hell of a drug and it really changes their personalities Mm. once we hit the 80s, doesn't it? And Jack actually is removed from that. He's not as into that. Are there any bad people in it? Are there any bad people? I mean, yeah, the, the colonel's colonel. not very yeah, nice. obviously but... a paedophile, and that's not great. It was nominated for the Screen Actors Guild for Best Ensemble Cast. It's a hell of an ensemble cast. Mm. I wondered who kind of stood out for you guys. I mean, John C. Riley, I'm guessing, is what you're <laughs> going to say from that. But is there anyone else that like sort of stood out to you guys as really awesome in it? John C. Riley, as we've covered, I think mm. Burt Reynolds is incredible in it. Cannonball Run, which would absolutely not merit any muster if we watched it for rated or dated, but I used to watch pretty much on loop as a kid, if only for the, the final closing credits and the bloopers, loved them, and Smoking the Bandits and stuff, absolutely loved Burt Reynolds. And I think Mark Wahlberg's absolutely brilliant in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, obviously I mentioned Alfred Molina, but yeah, Mark Wahlberg is great in this. Genuinely, like mm. really, really good. Does the mm-hmm. comedy really well. 
does the drama really well. I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. I really... Oh, he's so really tragic, sad. isn't he, Scotty? He is sad. He played him so well. When he turned up, we just wandered around the corner. I went, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it was a real, like, oh, it's, it's so nice to see him. And then I was like, yeah. oh, I'm, I feel very sad every time he's on the screen. We haven't talked about him much, and I guess there's probably a reason for that. What about the women in this film? I think this is one of the bits that lets it down a bit for me, is that I don't think the women are drawn particularly well. We can get to what, what my major problems are in a bit, maybe. But, yeah, they're not particularly incredibly well sketched. I, Julianne Moore's character just creeps me the yes. fuck out. Mm-hmm. I just find the way she keeps referring to him as her son unbelievably creepy I, I found that the whole thing just quite odd and unpleasant to watch and roller girl is just i mean i don't actually think heather heather graham yeah i don't think she's that great an actress if i'm honest and she's not really asked to do much so she's just sort of there i would say as a character she doesn't really do much for me either i find his mum like what yeah that There's drove no... me mental what is that? She's just horrible and abusive, but there's not like, it's all done very quickly. You don't really get, there's no explanation. There's no nothing. It's just, and then his dad's there looking all forlorn, like, oh God. I found that really weird. I didn't enjoy that. I actually paused the film and Googled, what's up with Eddie's mum? Like, I thought there was going to be some sort of explanation, but no, what it is, is a very one note bit of script and direction that gives him the impetus to leave home and begin his journey as a porn star yeah i was gonna be like oh is she religious or like is that you know is there is there a kind of like a bit of a fire and brimstone thing going on here blah blah, blah. yeah or chronically yeah depressed, and this or any and of the things just that, yeah. nothing hannah i'm interested in, in what doesn't work about this for you well the entire ending everybody gets no repercussions william h macy's wife is the only person like you know they're all on drugs and yeah we'll just get off drugs that's fine we'll sort that out that don't worry about that roller girl she'll go back to school yeah that'll be fine we'll sort that out if you look at how fucking phenomenal how phenomenal the deuce is there is no mention no mention at all about a coming aids crisis there in 1984 like we're running riot through their industry that's not mentioned so I just think it, it basically says it's okay to behave appallingly because it'll all end up okay in the I end. I think there are consequences for Julianne Moore's character, Amber, because mm, she I does agree. try to get access to her son and she's not allowed it. But then again, that's a woman that gets punished. Only women get punished in this film, apparently. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the sex industry doesn't really look after the women. Um, I don't know. That was a vibe I got from it. I don't know if it's true or not. Could be. Could be. Mick, what did you not like about it? Eddie's mum, I was like, I do not understand what is going on here. And yeah, I found Amber really creepy. I know Hannah spoke about it earlier, but we moved on. But I thought that was really creepy. And the the explanation appears to be because she doesn't have access to her son. But it's like, yeah, she wasn't fucking him for money, though, was she? It's so strange. That weird scene with her and Heather Graham with Roller Girl in the the bedroom. The fact that Roller Girl doesn't even get a fucking name. I know she's called Randy, I think. I mean, is that better than Roller Girl? I don't know in this context. The scene in the car. And I guess that is the film or Paul Thomas Anderson trying to show that there is a a really grubby underbelly and it's not all fun because has it been all fun before? But as Hannah said, that is totally undermined then by the fact that there's very little repercussions for anyone. They basically almost kill a man on the streets. Mm. And she's just back in school. Like, if you get stomped by a roller boot, it's going to do some pretty bad damage. And it was just too long. 
That was the other bit that really put me off. It was way too long. It's not even as long as he wanted it to be. Apparently, he was like said originally he was going to make three and a half hours and oh, no one could well. stop him. I'm glad they did. <laughs> me too. The downward spiral bit was way too long. They sort of didn't go into anything enough. Like, I know, obviously, he's trying to be like, well, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily ending well for him. The drugs are bad. You know, there is this underbelly that's not very nice. But then it all felt quite surface level at the same time. So, like, it it was almost like a montage that went on too long. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good description of it. Also, that horrific homophobia-driven attack Mm. that happens to, to Dirk slash Eddie is absolutely representative of what was going on at the time and and still happens now sadly but it just felt like it was in there for titillation just for it didn't they didn't really talk about it and sort of the dismissal of of scotty as well who is the the gay character in there i was like oh so what you're not really saying anything it's just in there for entertainment that seems a bit bit weird mick i don't think you ever watched the the deuce saw series one of the deuce you watched series one yeah I wondered what you thought about... Not enough cocks. Not enough cocks. <laughs> I mean, they're very, very different products, so it's a bit unfair in a way, but I wondered how you thought it stood up. I mean, it it, it doesn't, does it? <laughs> in terms of a drama, it doesn't. I mean, it, like I say, bits of it are really, really, really funny. So, you know, as mm. a comedy, those bits stand up. But as a sort of, as a commentary on the golden age of pornography, it, no, yeah, I, I wish he'd just gone full out comedy. Yeah, because yeah. then it would—I think it would have been absolutely brilliant. As it is, I'm really pleased I watched mm-hmm. it because I'd heard so much about it and I found lots to love about it and I laughed a lot. But I wouldn't ever choose to watch it again. Well, Mick, perhaps you've answered the question there. So let's let's do the final bit: rated or dated? It's a hard one, isn't it? I am going to land on rated. Because I do think it was hard, even having only seen season one of The Deuce, not to think about The Deuce. But this is pre-The Deuce, right? Pre mm. the way that telly would have tackled yeah. it. And I think there's, there's a lot of good stuff in it. Even if we're just going on John C. Riley's <laughs> performance <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg's performance and Burt yeah. Reynolds. You know, there was a lot that I enjoyed. I can see why it was big at the time. So, yeah, rated. Yeah, I'm going to say rated. Not because I think it's fully rated. Because, like I say, I think there are bits Agreed. that are wrong with it. But because... The things that are wrong with it aren't things that make it dated. They're just yeah, things that are yeah. wrong with it. So, yeah, I'm going to say rated too. Yeah, full house. I'm going to say rated. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I actually thought I would. I thought it would be interesting to talk about, but I didn't actually think I would enjoy it. We didn't even talk about the wang at the end. What is the point of the wang at the end, by the way? Why? why, why? Just in case you can't imagine a big cock, Jen, I suppose. <laughs> Well, Sorry, that was a really dirty laugh. <laughs> I would have rather more magic, to be honest. <laughs> but I just really loved that. Oh my God, I actually wrote down that line because it made me laugh so much. When he's asked, you know, what he would do if the porn industry, if it wasn't, that he's like, no, I think it is good for women. We treat women really well. And if it wasn't, I'd leave. I'll fuck on my own time. I've got other interests. I'm a magician. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> wet myself up. <laughs> Right then, who's up next? It's me. It's January still. Still January. It's fucking freezing. And so we're all going on a summer holiday. Oh my God. 60 years old. Oh fuck, you mean actual summer holiday? Oh Mick, what are you doing to me? (laughs) Oh dear. Standard issue. 
for all women.